It's Friday, January 11th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Jeb Sharp, filling in for Marco Werman. Today, we remember Irfan Ali, a Pakistani activist killed by a militant bomb. A friend says he was brave to speak up for Shiites in Sunni-dominated Pakistan. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of spine. It takes a lot of heart. And that's what he was. And later, Haiti, three years on, a journalist who lived there says the earthquake and its painful aftermath shouldn't define the country. People are having fun. People are falling in love. People are are, uh, getting in fights over stupid things. Living lives like people live lives anywhere else. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Jeb Sharp, and this is The World. Shiite Muslims refused to bury their dead today in the Pakistani city of Quetta. It was an angry act of protest against the government, demanding more protection for their community. A series of attacks against Shiites yesterday in Quetta and elsewhere killed about 120 people. A Sunni militant group claimed responsibility for the deadliest blasts. Before I'd even heard about the bombings, the story of Irfan Ali, a young man who died in the attacks, came to my attention through Twitter. I was drawn in by the emotion of the tweets eulogizing him. They called him a gem, a bright mind, a brave soul, someone born to fight for human rights and peace. We called up Irfan Ali's friend and fellow activist Marvi Sermed in Islamabad to find out more about him. At a personal level, he was a very passionate and caring person, despite the fact that he had to leave his hometown, Koita, a year and a half ago because of the security reasons. He left Koita, tried to settle in Islamabad. He got some freelance work. But despite all these hardships, the inner activist in him, a caring, very soft, emotional person, passionate person in him, did not die down. Uh, He was as committed and strong in his resolve as it could be. If you know the situation in Pakistan, even a little bit, you would know that being a Hazara and being a Shia in Pakistan and then not budging in and still speaking up for the rights of others, it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of spine. It takes a lot of heart. And that's what he was. You referred to his his background, that he's a, a Shia Hazara This attack is presumed to be an attack on Shiites by extremist Sunnis linked with the Pakistani Taliban, exactly the kind of sectarianism he fought against. Is that right? Absolutely so. He used to say that he would like to die fighting and while helping others. And that's how he died at the end. He died as a volunteer who was rescuing people who were injured in the first blast. He died in the second blast, which was planted in an ambulance. And Marvi, there are so many activists, and in Pakistan especially, is there a story you have that would help us understand why Irfan Ali was so special himself? 
Ifan was very, very clear about so many things. He would say whatever he thought was right. For example, I'll tell you that in 2010, there was an attack on Ahmadis, another minority community in Pakistan, which is very, very ferociously targeted here. There was an attack on Ahmadi community in Lahore, on uh, two of their mosques, and over 100 people died in that incident. And I gave a call for a protest. And so much is the fear among the civil society that no one turned up. It was only Irfan and I who were standing there holding a placard at the end of the day. No one was there. And I cannot forget this. When he was coming to Islamabad, he was very clear that he would want to live another day to fight and to help people. And that's what happened on the last day. This blast happened right in front of his house, the native house at Alamdar Road. And after the first blast, he rushed along with his brother and brother-in-law. He rushed. There were people who were stopping him and the volunteers. People were fearing that there would be another blast and there was another blast. And this time he could not survive. He could not, he just could not uh, save himself. Marvi Sermed, human rights activist, telling us about the human rights activist Irfan Ali. Our condolences to you all. Thank you so much. A defining moment for Pakistan and the United States was the American raid on Pakistani soil that killed Osama bin Laden. The movie depicting that daring CIA operation, Zero Dark Thirty, opens nationwide today. The film's been nominated for five Oscars, though many have criticized it for its torture scenes and for the filmmaker's working relationship with the CIA. But as the world's Arun Roth reports, the CIA and Hollywood go way back. Even though Hollywood has long been fond of spy thrillers, it didn't really notice the CIA until the 1960s when Agent Felix Leitner, played by Jack Lord, appeared in Dr. No. But the agency has been working with Hollywood since the 1950s. Trisha Jenkins is the author of The CIA in Hollywood. She says the CIA first started working with Hollywood to influence foreign audiences. Their purpose was essentially to win hearts and minds overseas during the Cold War. They developed a think tank to fight communist ideology, which negotiated the rights to George Orwell's animal farm, getting a talking pig on the screen 20 years before Charlotte's Web. You, Haynes, are to have the honor of making the first contribution. All your eggs. I know how proud you are of this privilege. Jenkins says the CIA wanted to promote a certain view of American life. For instance, pressing for line changes in 1950s scripts to make black characters more dignified and white characters more tolerant. This PC image was intended to promote an attractive image of America to a world picking sides in the Cold War. But while the CIA used Hollywood to project an American ideal, they didn't seem much concerned with their own image. In the old days, traditionally... The CIA, its predecessor, the OSS, they didn't really spend much time worrying about what the public thought about them. Ted Gupp is the author of The Book of Honor, Covert Lives and Classified Deaths at the CIA. He says that with the end of the Cold War, the agency realized it needed an image overhaul. It's come to recognize that without public support, its budget is in jeopardy. Um, and its very activities are in jeopardy. It's in constant uh, fear of congressional oversight and inquiries. 
In 1996, the CIA hired a Hollywood liaison, Chase Brandon, who happens to be the cousin of Tommy Lee Jones and came with lots of Hollywood connections. Jenkins says there's a noticeable change in the portrayal of the CIA after that period. Before the 1990s, in films like Three Days of the Condor, the agency was portrayed as evil, amoral assassins, or sometimes buffoons like Max on Get Smart. Now, Max, it seems to me that just a minute, Chief. Isn't this top security? Yeah. Well, shouldn't we activate the cone of silence? How much do you know about chaos? What did you say, sir? <laughs> Now it's a much more favorable presentation. So you've got the CIA much more frequently being depicted as a moral organization that is highly efficient. It rarely makes mistakes. It's needed more than ever. Since the mid 1990s. The agency has worked on a long list of productions, including *The Sum of All Fears* and some big TV names, *Alias*, *24*, and *Homeland*. There are some uglier portrayals, sometimes produced with unapproved help from former agents, like in the movie *Syriana*. I want you to take him from his hotel, drug him, put him in the front of a car, and run a truck into him at 50 miles an hour. That's George Clooney as CIA agent Bob Barnes, who's based on real ex-CIA agent Bob Bear. Syriana takes inspiration from Bear's own memoir. Here's Bear, who's working on a new book, *The Perfect Kill: Twenty-One Laws of Assassination*. They called me up and said, "Listen, we want to go on a trip with you to the Middle East." I went with the director, Stephen Gagan. I took him to Lebanon. I took him to meeting, you know, some shady people I know in London and Nice, and so forth. And he was absolutely fascinated by seeing the real Middle East. Syriana isn't exactly an advertisement for the CIA, but these days that's the exception. Jenkins says, for the most part, the agency gets their preferred image across, and unless you read the fine credits at the end of a film, you'd have no idea you just watched a movie produced with CIA help. It's important to note, though, that the CIA doesn't assist everyone. It's only going to help those that depict the CIA in a favorable light and help them boost recruitment interests. During her stint on Alias, Jennifer Garner actually made a CIA recruitment video. And if you find Ben Affleck or Jessica Chastain attractive, it's hard to think of a better recruitment ad than Argo or Zero Dark Thirty. For the world, I'm Arun Rath. There are a lot more stories about the CIA and Hollywood. Arun blogs about one of them at theworld.org. Ali Jalali has some things to say about how his country, Afghanistan, is perceived here and in Hollywood. Jalali is a professor at the National Defense University in Washington. He's also a former government minister in Kabul, and even ran for president against Hamid Karzai in 2009. Karzai met with President Obama today to discuss the winding down of America's presence in Afghanistan. Given the expected U.S. troop withdrawal, I asked Ali Jalali whether he's optimistic about his nation's future. I'm cautiously optimistic. I think if certain things are done between now and 2014, I think Afghanistan will make it. It will be painful for many years, but uh, Afghanistan will eventually reach some level of stability. It will take time. However, it needs commitment from both Afghans and also the international community. Now you live here in the United States. How do you feel about the conversation about Afghanistan sort of disappearing here? 
Well, it is, uh, you know, something that all Afghans in Afghanistan or outside Afghanistan are not happy about it because uh, Afghanistan was not always at war. Afghanistan was at peace before 1979. It was at peace with itself, peace with the, with the neighbors, uh, and uh, peace with everybody else in the world. However, Afghanistan's situation deteriorated after the intervention from outside, first the Soviet Union, then the neighbors, and then the response from the international community created that situation that's today. So those who uh, had a, a role in this situation could undo what they did to Afghanistan. So therefore, there is so that the Afghans need now the same kind of attention that was paid to the, uh, the war in 1980s, 19, uh, the, the last decade. Mr. Jalali, have you seen Zero Dark Thirty? Not yet. No, no, not yet. I wanted to see it, but something happened. No, I have not yeah. seen it. Yeah. Just this whole business of how we talk about Afghanistan. Do you, do you feel here in America that people are, are busy talking about, about Hollywood's depiction of things rather than, you know, the actual war itself, the actual policy dilemmas? You know, I will tell you one uh, personal experience. In two cases in Afghanistan and in my previous life, I was, uh, you know, uh, advisor to some uh, uh, film shooting, uh, which were historical. And when I uh, raised my voice that this is not what the, the history actually, uh, you know, teaches and what happened, and the producer said we are making a film for entertainment, not a kind of a, a documentary of Afghanistan history. So this is something that you have to take into uh, mind. Things can be interpreted in different ways. What the, 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 the situation what is seen by Afghans is totally different from the situation that's seen by others. So therefore, sometimes films are good, but at the same time, it brings attention to, 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 to an issue. But at the same time, it could also create misperceptions. Do you feel like the misperceptions have gotten better or worse since 9-11? I think the, the, uh, the, there are many, many perceptions are, are good, but at the same time, if we believe that the Osama bin Laden was the, the only reason for the international community to come to Afghanistan, I think this is a, misper- it's a misperception, because still Osama bin Laden is gone, but Al-Qaeda is there, there's still threat. Uh, emanating from South Asia, which can uh, affect the security interest of uh, the rest of the world. So we focus on bin Laden at our peril. Yes, right. Ali Jalali, professor at the National Defense University in Washington, former candidate for president of Afghanistan. Thanks very much. Thank you. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Jeb Sharp, and this is The World. A new law goes into effect next week in Cuba. It will allow Cubans to travel out of the country without having to first get permission from their own government. That's potentially a huge change for the communist-ruled island. But like other new rules being introduced in Cuba today, there are limits. Miriam Leva is an independent Cuban journalist in Havana. Independent means her work is published overseas, not in Cuba's state-run media. Leva is also the founder and former member of the Ladies in White, an opposition movement of wives and other female relatives of jailed dissidents in Cuba. 
Miriam, will the new law that takes effect on Monday mean a Cuban can simply book a flight and head out of the country? Is it that simple? No, it's not that simple. You have to apply for a passport and maybe you would not get it. How did the old law work and and what did it cost? Well, the old law said that you had to apply for an invitation from someone abroad. Then you had to get the visa from the country and you had to apply for a passport. And also, you had to ask for permission to leave. They call it here the white card, the white card. Why? Because the leave that you received was white. You know, everybody talk here about the white card, and that was the permission to leave the country. And how much did that cost, the whole process? It it cost all of that, cost around $250. If you weren't granted the permission, you would lose all the money. Lose all the money. You would lose all the money. Yes. And the new law, how is it different, and, and is it cheaper? Well, the passport costs $100, more or less, and if you're granted the passport, you can leave. But still, the government can say, well, we're not going to grant you the passport, and then you cannot travel. So you think it's all going to come down to whether someone is granted a passport or not? Yes, and besides that, the law states that everyone needs to be authorized by the place where they work. For example, if you're an official or you're a professional, you need to be authorized by the place where you work. And here in Cuba, most of the employers are from the states, are state-owned places. Do you know anyone who's going to test the law? Yes, I know. I know many people who are going to apply for the passport and are hopeful. Millions of Cubans that are not professionals or already retired and don't have, let's say, are not marked by political problems, <laughs> know that they would get the passport. And many, many others are wishing but are not sure that they would. But anyway, there is a great social pressure inside Cuba, and this is a way to let them go out when they're away, they can work, they can send money to their families here, and they might come back and be even useful because of their expertise when they come back. So you see why the government is trying to do this? Yes, mainly I think the government is doing this because it needs to ease the social pressure that is in Cuba. Cubans are losing fear, they're speaking out, they are each day more worried about their situation and striving more for the everyday life that is very harsh. And besides that, the government knows that it's going to receive money back because there will be remittances. Right now, the money that is sent by Cubans abroad is one of the main incomes that the Cuban government has in hard currency, in foreign money. Miriam, uh, your English is really good. I'm curious why. Well, when I was a little girl, I lived in Connecticut for three years. My parents decided to go to the United States in 1956 because uh, there was a dictatorship here in Cuba and there was an economic crisis too. And we have relatives, we had relatives in, in Connecticut. So we went there, had a normal, good life, and I studied in school in Connecticut. And I have very good experiences and, and you know, thoughts of what I, I lived in the United States. How did you end up back in Cuba? My father was very hopeful, for, and, you know, he was enthusiastic about the revolution and the changes that could come up, and, and that's why we came back. Great. We'll leave it there, Miriam. Miriam Leva has been speaking to us from Havana. She's a Cuban independent journalist who's been involved in human rights in Cuba since the early 1990s. Thanks again, Miriam. Thank you. Bye. 
Another travel-related story. This week, the London Underground celebrated its 150th birthday, and we aired a report about the history of the tube. You know, it was dark. It was subterranean. So it was a fantastic kind of thing that Londoners were brave enough to try this new form of transport, which has never looked back. So after that story, we asked you to share your tube stories. Here's Diana Bloomfield of Raleigh, North Carolina. My sister had read the year before in Glamour magazine about a program called Miss Liberty Incorporated. So the program itself sent British girls to New York City to work as secretaries throughout the city. And American girls could go to London and you'd be sent to various jobs for the whole summer. So I had never been anywhere. Um, I'm from a really, really small town. So I go off to the uh, underground station with my sister, you know, fully expecting her to take my hand and lead me everywhere because she'd been there the summer before. We get there and we go down and there's this great big map that, you know, that's such a colorful, beautiful map. Um, and so I look at my sister and I say, I have no idea where to go. Can Can you help me? She just sort of looked at me and said, uh, no, you're on your own. Figure it out yourself. <laughs> she just walked off. So I'm standing there in this vast place looking at this huge map, and um, this nice Englishman walked up in, in an underground. He was in a uniform. So he came over, and he asked me where I needed to go, and I showed him the address. He explained the map a little bit to me, and then he told me what train to get on, and he actually walked me all the way down to the train and just, so nice. It, it was just unbelievable. And, and you know, now every time I walk into a, a subway or even a train station, I always think about that. Thank you to Diana Bloomfield. Well, after that fond remembrance, we were compelled to share some stories from members of the World Newsroom. Here's the world's Clark Boyd. So if I could share one story about the tube, it would be about Queensway Station, which I have to go through quite a bit when I'm there in London. And I have the great misfortune of being both scared of heights and uh, also scared of being in crowds. And the only two ways out of that station are either up in the elevator, crammed in with, uh, you know, what seems to me to be thousands of other people, or to walk something like 400 stairs up this rickety spiral staircase. Uh, So... Most of the time, I just sit there in Queensway Station down at the bottom, rocking back and forth for about 10 minutes, deciding which particular hell I'm going to try. There's no air conditioning, so it's super hot, and you're crammed in with millions of people. And I remember this one guy, and he was standing up in front of me, and he wasn't wearing any shoes, and he wasn't wearing any shirt, and he actually wasn't wearing any pants. All he had on was this tiny little sarong that was kind of wrapped around his middle, There wasn't a single other person on the tube train who even acknowledged that this guy was standing there wearing almost nothing. And the thing that I kept thinking was, where did he put his bus pass? That was the world's Andrea Crossan sharing her favorite tube tale. So the poor maligned tube. I've been passing through London my whole life and remember as a child looking down at the floor of a carriage and being amazed it seemed to be made up entirely of cigarette butts. Happily, those days are gone. Now I just feel nostalgic for those long flights of stairs and the movie posters on the platforms. I wonder if the circle line is working today. Keep telling us your stories, good or bad, at theworld.org. The distant echo of faraway voices boarding faraway trains to take them home to This is PRI, Public Radio International.
I'm Jeb Sharp, sitting in for Marco Werman. Coming up, a musician who wasn't exactly encouraged as an aspiring artist back in France. People would ask me questions like, what do you want to do with your life? You know, I was like, I, I want to be a singer. But people were like, yeah, but what, what job? Like, what do you really want to do? And here in the U.S., when you say I want to be a singer, people are like, oh, really? Well, this is great. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Jeb Sharp, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. This weekend marks three years since the earthquake in Haiti. The country and its people are still struggling to overcome the devastating blow. Jonathan Katz was the Associated Press reporter in Port-au-Prince the day the quake hit. Katz's new book is called The Big Truck That Went By, because, he says, that's what the quake sounded like. In that particular kind of quake, the sound is a very salient feature of it because you hear this rumble coming from the distance. And for a long time after, whenever I would hear any kind of rumbling, since there's so little time between when you hear that, that first rumbling and that strike of afterward, um, it was very panicking. So even if a, a, a generator uh, came on or, or, frankly, if a big truck went by, I would often have that same kind of fear. On January 12, 2010, Katz was in his house, which doubled as the AP Bureau. He says the building essentially crumbled around him. When I emerged from the house um, with, with my colleague, my friend uh, Evan Sanon, who was uh, on, on the premises with me, we stopped and we looked up at this neighborhood that had been uh, behind our house before, an area called Mont Lazar, and uh, it was gone. It had been replaced basically by this uh, dust cloud stretching from horizon to horizon. And out of that cloud um, and all around us, uh, there was this uh, sound, this, this uh, um, screaming, this kind of wailing. Um, it's a very particular sound. It's uh, honestly something that uh, I've, I've only ever heard in Haiti, and, and it's usually from uh, women. Um, it's, it's often the way that people react to uh, a, a tragedy of, of any scale, you know, the, the, the death of a child. It, it can be a, a horrific car accident. Um, it's just this haunting wail of, um, of just incredible sadness uh, that I, I think I'll, I'll probably spend the rest of my life actually trying to forget. You then go out to see what's happened, and you have many scenes, many memories, many descriptions Three years later, is there an overriding one? Is there a sensation? Is there a picture? Is there a person who stays with you the most? I mean, the sensations of not being able to breathe, um, of uh, the dust cloud, you know, just sort of feeling uh, the, these, these particles, you know, uh, uh, scratching our throat, scratching my throat, scratching my lungs. There was a lot of really terrible stuff. It was, it was a horrible tragedy um, that was incredibly pervasive. It struck so hard and it struck so many people. It was so total that everywhere you turned uh, that night and then when the sun came up the next morning, there was death everywhere and there was sadness everywhere. And, uh, and, and even though those are things that it, it's very important to note, um, don't define Haiti uh, forever. They, they define this tragedy. Um, if, if you're talking about the tragedy itself, yeah, the, those are unavoidable. You write in the book that you were actually totally done with Haiti. You were, you were preparing to leave when the earthquake struck. 
and you decided to stay. Well, clearly, as a journalist, um, I was now in the midst of a, a major story. Um, it was a story that I knew. It was a place that I cared about. And, you know, I felt that it was really important to stay there and be a witness um, and uh, an Im- investigator and and try to keep track of the reconstruction and and try to keep an eye on on the promises that were being made because there were very grandiose promises being made um, overseas to help rebuild the country. Um, and I felt a I felt a responsibility and uh, uh, and and a desire to um, to continue reporting there. And finally, Jonathan, you said don't don't let the earthquake define Haiti. What do you most miss about Haiti? Haiti is wrongly looked at from the outside um, as this place that is just a story of unbroken sadness and unbroken tragedy. Um, and even though tragedy is is an important part of the country's recent past, um, and even though poverty is an important thing to to grapple with um, in terms of understanding the country's present and future. It's also important to understand that uh, even in the midst of these things, you know, people are having fun, people are falling in love, people are are uh, getting in fights over stupid things, um, and living lives like people live lives anywhere else. And I think by telling fuller stories and uh, uh, you know complicating our narratives a little bit, and I'm, I'm hoping that some of what I was able to do in the book, um, that we can get a, a better uh, understanding of one another, uh, and that ultimately uh, we can take a relationship writ large between um, you know large powerful countries such as the United States and Haiti uh, and and uh, and other uh, vulnerable countries like it. Um, and really make something better in the future. I, I think there's there's always a lot of optimism because uh, the story's never over and there's always a chance to uh, start doing things better. Um, but we need to start now. Jonathan, thank you. Thank you. By the way, the full title of Jonathan Katz's book is The Big Truck That Went By, How the World Came to Haiti and Left a Disaster Behind. Katz writes extensively about the money promised to Haiti and where it all went. You can hear that part of our conversation at theworld.org. While you're there, check out a story we did in 2010. It was a profile of a Haitian teenager who'd arrived in the U.S. in the wake of the earthquake. Her name is Jardana Constan. She was 18 then. Now she's 21. The world's Alex Galifant met up with her to find out how she's been building a new life for herself in New York City. It's worth going back for a second. Here was Jardona talking in 2010. After the earthquake, I started going to school under a tent. Then, without any warning, my aunt called me to tell me I was coming to the States. She was sending for me. The last time we spoke, you spoke French. You didn't speak English very well, and we used a translator. And I think it's that you're grinning now. You're just, like, completely fluent in English, right? Yes, because, you know, when you come here young, you learn very quickly. You can say that again. Over the last couple of years, Jardana has been on something of a tear. Back in 2010, it wasn't clear what the future would hold. She was living with her aunt in Brooklyn, it's home to many Haitians, and she held only a tourist visa. But she'd already taken a big step. She won a place at a Manhattan high school that specializes in helping immigrant kids catch up. They had talent show, Chinese New Year, they have senior trips to D.C. Jardana Constant graduated in June, and a lot changed in that time, not least her name. You know, in America, my teachers, my friends, and my supervisor, everyone, they pronounce it Jardana Constant. She doesn't mind so long as you spell her name correctly. 
Chardonnay's aunt became her legal guardian here in the states, and that led to perhaps the most consequential change. Now I have my green card. Of course, that's huge. Danel Benoit has known Chardonnay since she arrived in 2010. Benoit runs the Flamboyant Haitian Literacy Project here in New York, a community group for young immigrants from Haiti. I'm so excited for her because I think the thing that she wanted the most uh, she got because I know it's really hard to be here, you know, undocumented. So that's wonderful. After the earthquake, Benoit was seeing new Haitian kids turn up every day. Now, things have quietened down a bit, but everything in Haiti is still, as she puts it. After the quake, newcomers are still arriving, moving in with family members who are already here, and not all of them do as well as Jardona. We see many other young people that are in her situation, and that didn't happen. So it's uh, she's special, basically. One of the things Benoit's youth organization does is encourage Haitian teenagers to look beyond the confines of the community. The community is necessary, but not sufficient. Chardonna Constant has already flown the nest. In September, she began community college in Queens. Thanks to her green card, she's eligible for financial aid. But what's she studying? Right now, international relations. I wanted to be a diplomat. When I told my parents, my aunt, my dad, everyone that I'm going to choose the major international relations, they told me diplomacy is not for me. Seems like a good fit, though. Jardona speaks French, Creole, now English, and a good amount of Spanish too. She loves the idea of traveling and translating for a living. But now, 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 the diplomacy turned into nursing. So I'm really confused. She's changing her major next semester. I mean, I don't see her as a nurse, so <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. Danielle Benoit sees this all the time. Families putting pressure on their kids. You need to do it right now. You have to contribute to the family. So it's a challenge, but no greater than any of the challenges Jardana Constance had to face already. And the beginning is always tough, you know. Once she's done with school and to continue as she gets older, I think she has a very, very bright future ahead. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant in New York. We're searching for Celtic roots in today's geo quiz. We're looking for a spot in northwestern France. It's the mountainous peninsula known as Little Britain because of its Celtic heritage. That heritage is still apparent today in the culture and identity of the people. It's the birthplace of French singer Nolwenn Le Roy. She often goes by just her first name. It is a Celtic name. That's why we actually dropped the the last name is because I carry my uh, roots and you know the place where I was born in my uh, in my name because it's it, it is a Celtic name. We'll hear more about Nolwenn and her music and why she wanted to go back to her Celtic roots on her U.S. debut album. That's all when we come back with the answer and our global hit.
This past week saw a rare public outburst in China. It all started last week when a propaganda official in Guangdong replaced an editorial in a popular newspaper called Southern Weekly. The journalists went on protest, and celebrities with millions of online followers started tweeting their support for a freer press in China. Things have calmed down now. Still, the incident says a lot about the changing expectations of China's journalists and the public. Here's the world's Mary Kay Magstead. It used to be a lot easier being a propaganda official in China. People listened to you, maybe feared you, and certainly didn't go public with your attempts to create a rosier image of China's leaders. Didn't work so well in Guangdong this past week. Protesters came out in support of striking journalists from the Southern Weekly newspaper. Anger exploded when propaganda official Tua Jun had swapped out the paper's front-page editorial last week, calling for greater civil rights, with a version saying China's hopes lay in the new leadership. This protester told Hong Kong's TVB, they insult our intelligence. And in this heated exchange, a young man said he supports the Constitution and opposes what the censor did. An older man says, well, the Constitution is for the Communist Party running China. The younger man retorts, the Constitution grants the freedom of speech. He turns to the crowd, should we support freedom of speech? A similar rallying cry went up online. Even with censors furiously deleting critical posts, enough stayed up long enough to be seen by millions, with many, including celebrities, offering vocal support. Li Tong, a former newspaper editor, says this is a severe warning to the authorities that their traditional way of managing the media has triggered anger. They need to do better. Li Tong used to edit an edgy supplement in the China Youth Daily, He lost his job in 2006 for doing something too close to real journalism for the comfort of China's leaders. Back then, he says, far fewer people in China knew when the censors weighed in, even when they got rid of someone. He's surprised and heartened by how much celebrities and others have taken up the Southern Weekly cause. He says, it's a great sign of progress. It shows that people's awareness is growing, that freedom of speech shouldn't be just for a few people. But Lee wouldn't call himself an optimist about the current situation. After all, it's not yet clear what new party chief Xi Jinping thinks about all this. Yukon Huang, who headed the World Bank's China office for seven years and is now with Carnegie's Asia program, says the past week's events have given China's new leaders much to think about. If they deal with it successfully, it preserves stability. But then there is that slippery slope. The slippery slope gets slipperier. And the Internet and knowledge and media dissemination makes it more risky. And the risks emanate and go to Beijing much sooner. And the consequences of the actions and how they're handled are much greater. So the risks are magnified. The way this dispute was handled was with a compromise. The Southern Weekly journalists would go back to work and wouldn't be punished for striking. And the censors would back off a little. But at the same time, some protesters have been arrested. Some people who made comments online are being threatened with charges of subversion. And a Beijing newspaper, the Beijing News, had to buckle under the pressure of censors when it tried to make its own stand. Still, Li Datong says, something was gained. He says, all the support that came this week showed journalists it's worth fighting. They can hold on to that as they move forward. 
Lee's done a little fighting of his own. He says even though he's retired, he's been getting regular visits for months from the Public Security Bureau. They'd tell him they were monitoring his phone calls and would sometimes block him from giving interviews. Finally, a few weeks ago, he says, he blew up at them. He told them they were shameless, and if they didn't stop their harassment, he'd write an open letter detailing everything they'd been doing. He chuckles and says... They haven't been by since. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Jeb Sharp, and this is The World. I'd like to introduce you to French singer Nolwenn Leroy. She made her U.S. debut this week in New York. Now, Nolwenn is a name with Celtic roots, and that's the kind of music she plays on her first U.S. album. Here's the track, Whiskey in the Jar. Early in the morning, as I rose up for trouble, the guards were all around me and likewise Captain Farrell. First produced my pistol, for he stole away my rapier. I couldn't chew the water, so a prisoner I was taken, assuring them a dude in my dawn. What for, Daddy-O? What for, the Daddy-O? There's whiskey in the jar. Nolwenn is no stranger to the U.S. She's lived here before. But now she's back as a professional singer. It feels amazing to be back. Um, it's just beyond everything I could have ever imagined. Being a when I actually used to be in, you know an exchange student 14 years ago in uh, Hamilton, Ohio, in Hamilton High School. I, sp- I was uh, so lucky, and it was a, an amazing opportunity at this age. I was 15 at the time to be able to um, be welcomed in, in an American family. They hosted me for a year, and um, it totally changed my life um, in How? many different ways. Well, because it just, you know, music really became possible when I was in the U.S. It used to be like a passion of mine, like I would spend a lot of time making music, writing songs. But people would ask me questions like, what do you want to do with your life? You know, I was like, I, I want to be a singer. But people were like, yeah, but what, what job? Like, what do you really want to do? And here in the U.S., when you say I want to be a singer, people are like, oh, really? Well, this is great, you know. And, um, you know, it's this American dream. You know, you have this dream and you work hard for it. And it's what I call meritocracy. You know, you just you believe in your dream. You work hard. And if it happens, well, it's it just seems possible here. And that's uh, when I went back to France. I said, OK, now it, it it's possible for me. Like I, I would, would just see things differently. And um, it really, really helped. I had more confidence in myself. And uh, I worked hard for it for it to actually happen in France. But just thinking of coming back here and uh, as a singer and uh, have the opportunity to release my album here in America, that was this just amazing, really. You've always been looking to this day. Yeah, I've always been looking to this day and um, definitely. Would you say this album is sort of designed for an American ear? I don't know if it's designed, uh, really. I mean, it's a hard question. It's tough because... I think it's it's pop music, but it's Celtic oriented. You have Celtic instruments, because um, I was born in, in in Brittany, which is the Celtic uh, territory in France. It's the left arm of France, and usually people here you have a lot of Celtic music lovers, a lot of um, well Irish people who built uh, this country also. And like I'm in New York and Boston, and all the East uh, uh, Coast is um, very much in, like Celtic influenced, you know, in a way. So people love this music and love this. Spirit. Spirit, this Celtic spirit, and um, so yeah, I guess uh, there is an audience for uh, this um, Celtic pop uh, 
It touches their heart, you know. There's something magic about this music, I have to say. That's French singer Nolwenn. Definitely the Celtic vibe there, much more than, say, what we might think of as a French vibe, right? Tell us mm-hmm. more about those roots in your life, in your music. It means so much to me. You know, when you uh, grew up in a place where you've um, everything you've been listening to as a child, it really influences you and the rest of your life as, a, as an artist, you know. So um, I all my previous records were more like pop-oriented. And at some point I was like, well, let's record an album uh, with... Um, all the songs that influenced me so far, and uh, it just really made myself happy. I just wanted to sing those songs. You don't have to be from Brittany or from Ireland uh, to to love this music and to to feel this emotion when you listen to these sounds. <laughs> I wonder still if you can put into words more what the Celtic part of you is. You know, you talk about writing these pop songs and now you're going Celtic back well, to your roots. That, that nostalgia, what is it? What's different about it? It's hard to explain because in France, you know, it's, it's really important to me uh, that people understand that we have this Celtic territory in France. But on the album, I sing in Breton, the Breton language, which is this language that we used to speak and that we still speak in, 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 um, in Brittany, even though French is the actual official language and the main language, but the Breton language is really, really important in, in Brittany. And um, it was important for me to um, to sing in Breton, to sing in Gaelic, in French as well. There are some songs in French, some songs in English, because they're all the, you know, the, the, the languages of Celticism, if I can put it that way. So um, it's something that's just so part of me. It's been in my heart for so long. And um, I don't know if it's because I'm getting older or what, or some kind of therapy. And that's what I did with this record in a way. I call it my Madeleine of Proust, you know. That's how we say it in yes. French. It's all the, all the, the memories from childhood, the smells, the others, you know, like the, the, the sounds, all these memories. It's nothing really like precise, but it's things that just um, remain in you forever. That's pretty much what this album is all about. And are you a different person in Celtic when you're in this vein? Are, are you somehow different from your other self? Is there other two selves? Well, it's a great question because I think I'm getting closer and closer to who I really am. I'm feeling good now. Like I've never felt that good, actually, um, on stage um, singing. And, you know, it's true. And it's sincere. It's spontaneous. And I'm feeling uh, really comfortable uh, and, and full, fuller maybe than ever. That's French singer Nolwenn. Her debut U.S. album is of the same name, Nolwenn. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. 
And here's a footnote to this story. At Nolwenn's performance in New York, the family she stayed with in Ohio came to the show. It was the first time she'd seen them in 14 years. We have a video of Nolwenn at theworld.org. Before we sign off, we owe you the answer to our geo-quiz. We were looking for the region in France where Nolwenn is from. She mentioned it, if you were listening carefully. The answer is Brittany. The world theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Jeb Sharp. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International